Well, welcome. Good to have you with us today. Thank you so much for coming out today. And we trust that your hearts will be encouraged and your spirits will be emboldened as we fellowship and worship together and just in sp- and spending time with one another. I want to look into a, a very interesting passage in John 8 this morning. John eight twelve through 20. And let me just begin by reading the passage for you. John 8, 12 through 20. It'll be up here on the screen so you can follow along. You can just listen as I read it. But John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Really, Jesus is inviting those that are hearing him to become his disciples, to believe him, to follow him. Verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. So they're thinking back to an earlier moment when Jesus said, you know, I don't testify of myself. But of course, they're just missing the point in a lot of ways, as we'll see. Verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from. I know that I'm the eternal Son of God who's come, taken on flesh and blood, dwelt among you, provided the way of salvation. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, going back to the Father. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And you hear that echo of, came not to judge but to save. In verse 16, even Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. And here he's identifying himself with the, with the Father, the triune God. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. And here's another little disclosed, not so obvious I am statement in verse 18. I am the one who bears witness. It's almost like I am the light of the world. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father. So Jesus hits them head on, straight on with a response to their criticisms. And you've got to just love verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And it's that last statement. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Who's really in charge here? Isn't that awesome? The sovereign hand of God, the sovereign plan of God, the decree of God being worked out, willed out, played out exactly as God had determined it from eternity past. His hour had not yet come. We'll see in 13.1, Later on, as we get to that chapter, that his hour now having come, you see Jesus then following through and allowing himself to be the sacrifice that was decreed from eternity past. If I were to sum up this set of verses, this episode in the book of John, I'd say something like this. Jesus truthfully affirms, I am the light of the world. His witness and his judgments are true because he and the Father bear witness to it. Now, it sounds like a circular argument, doesn't it? His witness is true because Jesus and the Father 
witness to it or say it's so. Well, you know, there's an appropriate use, I think, of a circular argument in logic and in, in a presentation of a case. And Jesus draws on that as the eternal Son of God and says, this is true because I said it's true. I am God. I am the Son of God. I am in oneness with the Father and with the Spirit. And I make this proclamation to you this morning. So let's take a look at John chapter 8. Let's take a look at this story, this episode, in the context of the book of John, just for a moment, briefly, okay? John wrote this gospel with one purpose in mind. It's stated, that purpose is clearly stated, verified, and, and articulated for us in John 20, verses 30 to 31. Therefore, John writes, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written. Why? Why were these written? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Alright, so I, I don't want you to lose sight of that purpose controlling this little story, this true story, this episode that we're going to dig into this morning. Each episode in the gospel, each story in the gospel, ultimately serves this one purpose stated in John 20, 30-31, that you might believe. So, you know, you think about it today, and as I was thinking about you coming this morning, and thinking about who you would be, and where you would be in your moment or your season of life. And, and perhaps there are some of you who are sitting here today, and you're just curious about the gospel. You're just sort of like, what's this whole church thing about? And I'm just here because of a friend inviting me. Or maybe you've been coming because you're kind of curious. Or maybe you're, maybe you're a little bit skeptical but you're still here. You're listening. You're, you're wondering what's going on. What's this all about? Is this really true? Well, the purpose of the gospel is written especially for you. With the underlying invitation to believe that Jesus is the Christ. This story that we're going to tell this morning, this true story that we're going to unpack is written for you. It's here for you that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the Son of God. So I pray that the Spirit of God would really work in your heart this morning. To open the eyes of your understanding so you'd see that. You'd hear that. You'd believe that. You'd respond to it. But you know, it's not just for an unbelieving audience. The, the, the story, the episode is also for those of us who have believed, but who may feel like we need some help with our weak faith. You know, I kind of think about weak faith and we're kind of like that father who's bringing his mute son possessed by a spirit to Jesus for healing. Can, dads, can you identify that with that? You know, you've got a child who needs to be made well. And you've, you've exhausted all of your medical options. And you come to Jesus just saying, you know, I don't know what to do with my child. Possessed by a spirit, can't talk. And I, I know all things are possible with you, Jesus. I really do. But help my unbelief. Have you ever been there? You know, just, I know it's true, Lord. And I know all things are possible with you. But I just need some help with my unbelief. Would you help me? And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here today and you've been following Christ for 20 years, 10 years, 15 years, 50 years. And you sit here and you think, man... 
I just need some help this morning with my unbelief. My faith is weak. I need it to be made strong. And I pray for you, as for me, that the Spirit of God would use this little episode in the Gospel of John to strengthen our faith in who Jesus is. He's the light of the world. And what does that mean for us today? Let's take a look at John 7 and 8. We want to look specifically at at 8, 12 through 20. So we'll move our way through in an efficient manner. But let's now look at this unit, 7 and 8, in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. Alright, that's what's going on in the background of John 7 and 8. Now there are two clusters of feast in the religious calendar of Israel. The first month is actually Nisan, March, April. And in that first month of the religious calendar, there were four feasts that Israel would celebrate. They were grouped together in, in, in pairs of two. The first two feasts were Passover and unleavened bread. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with Passover. Um, You've heard about that. It focuses on God's past act of the deliverance of the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Unleavened bread was the symbolizing of a fresh new start for the nation of Israel. So when the Israelites celebrated Passover in connection with unleavened bread, deliverance, new start. That's what happened in the past. And when we open up and we serve you the Lord's table this morning, it's very much like that. We're reminding ourselves about what God did, what Jesus did for us in the past. And so we hold the cup and we hold the bread and we're reminded of what Jesus did for us in the past to provide us redemption. The other two feasts, first fruits and wave loaves, focused on the present So when God delivered and when God gave them a fresh start in the present, he gave them the provisions that they needed. A fresh start. Blessings that were anticipated are now realized for the nation of Israel. First month, four feasts, Passover unleavened bread, first fruits and wave loaves. The seventh month, Tishri. Now we're moving into September, October. So you got March, April, September, October is when Israel is really celebrating their religious calendar. In the seventh month, three feasts are being celebrated. Trumpets, which announces something special, something important, something significant is on the horizon. Trumpets, blowing the trumpets, calling the nation, anticipating the next thing that would be rather sober and serious the Day of Atonement. And in the Day of Atonement, they're recalling their sins and they're, they're making their sacrifice for sin. But that's then followed by tabernacles, which is probably the most festive feast in the calendar of Israel. It's called the ingathering. It's the time when they would celebrate the ingathering of fruit and grapes and the harvest that would come, the olives that would be gathered in. And they would be building booths. And they would be reminding themselves of what it was like to journey through the wilderness. And how God was present with them. And how God provided for them. I grew up in a, in a Jewish neighborhood in northeastern Pennsylvania. And I was around Jewish friends all the time. My father was employed by uh, some Jewish, great Jewish families. And I can remember at this time of the year, there would be a few Jewish families that you would see that they would build the booths in their backyard at this time, October, September, October. 
And they would, they would do that in, as part of them remembering how God uh, brought the nation of Israel through the wilderness, how they dwelt in tents, how they were provided for, how God supplied for them, how God was present with them. Now, in addition to the seven feasts that we talked about, there were three pilgrim feasts. Passover, wave loaves, and tabernacles. Now, why are they called pilgrim's feast? Well, because the men, the faithful men, would have to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And so you have, think about it. Why these three? Passover reminded them of their future. Or excuse me, Passover reminded them of their past. Wave loaves reminded them of their present. And tabernacles reminded them of their future. So isn't that cool how God so ordained this to be such a significant object lesson for the nation of Israel? They make this pilgrimage and they're reminding themselves of in these holidays, in these festivals, of their past, of their present, and of what was before them, of Christ's coming and the kingdom being established and so forth. So this is the way that God portrayed his great plan for them until in in anticipating the great kingdom blessings that would come. Now Jesus used the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7 and John 8 to make his point. Now here, think about it. All right, here, what's, what's going on? All right, the city of Jerusalem is buzzing. All these people, so it's a pilgrim festival. So, so not only people in Jerusalem, but the Israelites outside of Jerusalem, they're coming to Jerusalem. So it's a crowded, festive, spirited time. They're coming to celebrate tabernacles. Crowds and people and, you know, it's a happy time. It's a celebratory time. It's a time where there's just lots of activity going on. There's a lot of gratefulness and thankfulness for how God has um, provided for them and how they're anticipating the coming of the kingdom and they're building their sheds and their booths and they're dwelling in them for the duration of this feast. And Jesus takes this opportunity to leverage this holiday to declare that he is their hope. He is the one who fulfills everything for them. So what happens? Let me, let me try to recre- recreate the day, if I could. Let me just tell you the story. Let me just try to recreate the day for you, what it was like. Okay, each day at dawn, the priest, along with the crowds, they form to, to pr- make a procession from the temple to the pool of Siloam. So the crowds gather. Can you imagine? The crowds are gathering. People are chatting. You know, there's a buzz in the air. There's a little bit of excitement and so forth. And they get in line. They get in order. And they're making their way. They're forming a line. They're forming a procession from the temple to the pool of Siloam. Not very far from each other. And then once they get to the pool, there's an appointed priest with a golden pitcher. And he goes up to the pool and he fills the pitcher up with water to be carried back to the temple. Alright, so they go, fill it up, and the crowd is singing from Isaiah 12, with joy you will draw water from the walls uh, or the wells of salvation. Now once they get back to the temple, the priest would walk around the altar while the temple choir, so there we go, that's why Baptist churches have choirs. You know, you can figure they're probably in their robes, maybe they're swaying, I don't know. But anyway, they're, they're, they're singing the hallelujah psalms. Psalm 113 through 118, praising God. 
And at the appropriate time you hear things like, Give thanks to the Lord. O Lord, save us. And then the priest who had drawn the water from the pool of Siloam would go to the altar and he would pour the daily drink offering of wine into one bowl. He would pour the water that he had drawn from the, uh, the pool into another bowl. And the people would sing, lift up your hand to signal the completion of the offering. And all of this drama, all of this uh, was orchestrated to bring remembrance to the gift of water. And the promise of living waters to come out of Jerusalem in the future. You see, you remember, the nation remembered that they had almost perished as they were walking through the wilderness. And the nation was promised in the prophets that living water would come from Jerusalem as the Messiah would come. Alright, so you get it? You feel it? And then all of a sudden you hear echo across the court and across the temple hallways. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture had said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. John 7, 37-38. Could you imagine hearing that echoing out across? Jesus making that declaration. All of attention being drawn to him. And he's in a sense saying to all of these Israelites who are gathered for a variety of reasons and with a variety of motives, saying to them, I am the living water. You're anticipating. I am the one who will satisfy your thirst. Could you imagine what that must have been like? What, I, you know, I wonder, did it go quiet? Did everybody turn around and look? Did people reckon, yes, it is him. No, it's not. Where's that guy from? He's a maniac. He's nuts. What is he saying? So you can, but in John 7 and 8, you feel the tension. You feel the tension between what Jesus is saying and how the people are responding to that. Well, in a similar way, in John 8, according to the Talmud, a Jewish commentary, toward the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, people went down into the court of the women. This big court area. And in that court were golden lamps, four golden bowls, ladders. And then there was this priestly, it was youth ministry time. Uh, the priestly youth would fill the, you know, the, the candles up with the oil. And they would make wicks out of the discarded trousers of the priest. So that was youth ministry back in the day. You know, filling the oil, lighting the candles, you know, that kind of thing. So you see how they were involved. And then every court was obviously lit up from the candles and from the light that was uh, being brought out here. And men of piety were dancing and the Levites were playing their instruments. And this was happening every night except for the Sabbath day. And all of this is designed to recall and to emphasize the presence of the Lord with his people. He was leading them by the pillar of uh, fire by night. He was leading them with a pillar of cloud during the day. And again, Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. So can you imagine again the drama of that, the impact of that, the significance of that? And so you see what John is doing for us. The gospel writer John is taking the religious calendar of Israel and he's putting Jesus right into the middle of it and saying, it's fulfilled. It's fulfilled. He's here. 
This is who we've anticipated. This is who we've longed for. This is who we have been looking for. And of course, how did they respond? Did everybody come forward after the fourth stanza? Uh, No, they didn't. They didn't come forward at all. So what is Jesus saying? I mean, I, I, I hope that resonates with you. I hope that gives you a little better appreciation for John 7 and 8 when this declaration is being made. And it's not just, you know, Jesus saying some random thoughts. No, he's saying these things in a very calculated, very intentional way, a very thoughtful way, a very purposeful way. And John's putting it together for one purpose that you might believe. You see, again, for those of you who come today, you sit here and you hear the gospel, I hope you see who Jesus is. And I hope you willfully and, and enthusiastically would be willing to put your faith and trust in him. So what is Jesus saying when he makes this declaration? Well, I think there are three things basically is being said. Number one, if we take the, the contrary point, let's start with a negative what is Jesus saying when he makes this declaration? I am the light of the world. And by the way, John's the only one who records this in all the four Gospels. He's basically saying from a negative point of view, no light, no life. No light, no life. You know, when you think about the absence of light, you obviously think of darkness. And when you think of darkness, you kind of think and feel many unsettling things, don't you? I mean, like when the darkness comes in, you just kind of feel unsettled. You know, there's, you know, uh, perhaps you had to sleep with a nightlight or maybe you had to set that up for one of your children along the way. But I think of people trapped under the rubble of buildings destroyed in an earthquake. You know, you read about this, you hear about this, and, you know, an earthquake takes place and buildings crumble and people are caught underneath the rubble of that. They're in pitch black darkness. And, you know, they're, they're wondering if they're going to survive. They're crying out with as much energy as they have left within them. Help, help. You know, bondage and torture often happen at night and in the dark. Prisoners, I, I read a little bit about this this week. Uh, you know, prisoners are brought to the brink of insanity by being kept in darkness and, you know, being secluded in such a way they have no sense of, day or night or beginning of the day, the end of the day. We, we use metaphors like, I was kept in the dark. You know, what, what, what is that, you know? And maybe sometimes like you're in a conversation with someone or you're, you're planning and you're just like, something happens, you're like, man, I was in the dark on that. You know, that was concealed from me. That wasn't information that was given to me. There was no light. There was no information. And the biblical material makes no qualms about associating darkness with Satan and his kingdom and with a life of ungodliness. So what Jesus is saying, when he says, I am the light of the world, he's saying, no light, no life. But on the more positive side, he's saying, where there is light, there is life. You think back to that illustration of, or or that thought of, or news clips of, people who are caught in an earthquake and buried under the rubble in the darkness. And you can imagine, if you could just put yourself in that for a moment, and you think about being captured under that and in that darkness and you're crying out for help and all of a sudden you see a beam of light coming into that darkness. And all of a sudden your hopes are lifted and you realize there's, there's some life out there. There's some help out there. 
There's somebody out there that can help me, that can rescue me, that can bring me out from this. The life and work of Christ are frequently associated with light. I love uh, Psalm 36 verse 9, speaking of the triune God. With you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Psalm 104 verses 2 to 9, if I could summarize it, you cover yourself in light as with a garment. So when we think about Jesus, we think about God, we think about light. His, His garment is light. His garment is life that he imparts to us. And this is why John starts his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the, and, and the Word in the, was with the light, and light was penetrating from him, and life was being emanated from him. And none of us can have eternal life apart from coming to Jesus Christ to receive the life that the true source of light offers us. And Jesus even said in John 12, 36, While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. And again, I appeal to you. I appeal to you. And I don't want to take anything for granted this morning. The reason why I guess I'm a little bit motivated along that line, there's, a, there's one of our, our young men, he's doing an internship at a church in Detroit this summer. He called me yesterday, he said, uh, he calls me Dr. Clem because I knew him from the college. And he says to me, Dr. Clem, I, I, was, I was helping work with a missions team, youth team, mission kids, kids that want to go out on a missions trip. Getting them ready for their missions work among Muslims up there in Detroit, in that Detroit area. And um, he just happened to say to them, well, tell me about the gospel. How would you explain the gospel? And he said the kids couldn't do it. Kids had no idea how to speak out the gospel or define it. I don't want that to be true of you. I don't want that to be true of us. He said, what do I do about it? So what do I do about that, Dr. Clem? I said, you just preach it. You proclaim it. You, you go over it and over it and over it again. Don't assume anything. So this morning, I don't want to assume anything with anyone the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he did for us, his death and burial and resurrection. We just never want to lose sight of what that is and how we would articulate it and how we would live in the light of it and on the basis of it. So Jesus says, where there is light, number three, I am present. Psalm 89 verse 15, blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence. Jesus is really placing himself in the context of Israel's history and affirming he's the one ever present with his people. I've been with you from your birth, through your bondage, through your wilderness wanderings, to this moment in time and into your future. I am your light. I'm giving you life and I'm present with you forever and ever. I'll never forsake you. I'll never abandon you. So Jesus promises life to those who will follow him. And he says, he who follows me. And follow is really a term of discipleship. Matthew and the other disciples followed Jesus. But do you remember the rich young ruler? He didn't follow Jesus, did he? He decided not to follow. And why was that? He was looking at his wealth. He he could not see beyond his wealth to see the greater treasure that he had in Christ. But then again, John says, my sheep hear my voice. 
and they follow me. They, they come after me. So follow is a lifelong commitment, albeit imperfect. Yes, maybe some of you have been following Christ for years, for decades. And I'm sure you would say it's not been a perfect following. And that's, that's reality. But it's been a persevering following. Following Christ, loving Him, serving Him, being obedient to Him. And of course, Jesus says, if you follow me, you're not going to walk in darkness. The world is divided really into children of light and children of darkness. And the children of light will follow the light. Paul talks about being delivered out of this bondage in Ephesians 6. And I love what the, the commentator Richard Linsky says, those following Christ will escape the deadly power of darkness. They will no longer be lost. They will not perish in the world's desert. And Jesus very emphatically says, those who come after me and follow me, you will not walk in darkness. And he says, but. And if I could draw your attention to that but, I'd sort of say, okay, think of that but in all capital letters. B-U-T. But you will have life. You will not walk in darkness, but you will have light. You will not be a slave to this kingdom of darkness any longer, but you will have life. And of course, this Jesus critics didn't like that. You know, when he stood up in the temple and made that pronouncement, like I said, they, didn't, they weren't playing the fourth verse and the well-known evangelist was in town and everybody was flocking forward. This wasn't really a Billy Graham crusade, you know, uh, response time at all. There was like, Hey, who are you? You know, you know, what you're saying is not really true. Your witness is not true. You know, who do you think you are to make those kind of claims and those kind of declarations? Your witness is not true. They, they wag their fingers back at Jesus. And he says to them, my witness is true. My witness is true. I've witnessed to you who I am the eternal Son of God. I've witnessed to you by signs and by declaration and by connecting all of the dots with prophetic scriptures. And you've chosen not to believe me. <clears throat> he goes on and he says to them who criticize, you judge according to the flesh, human standards, but I judge in harmony with the one who sent me. I am in harmony with. I am God with the Father, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I am the eternal Son of God. You judge according to the flesh. You don't know who sent me. Your law requires two witnesses. Hear my witness. I am the one who bears witness. And then, of course, we come to the end where Jesus says, or where it is said of him in verse 20, Jesus is in charge. No one seized him. His hour had not yet come. So it's quite a passage, isn't it? Quite a story. A true story. Quite an account. Quite a moment. Rather dramatic when you think about it all. And here is Jesus making this declaration of who he is by way of his origin and the life that he brings and by way of confessing his presence with his people. So what, do you, what, what, what should we do with this passage? What should we do with it? How do we benefit from it? You know, and if you're here this morning, whether you are a skeptic, maybe you're here because you're just seeking, you're here out of just like common courtesy or friendship, or maybe you're here this morning and you say, man, I, 
I've believed, I've trusted Christ, but man, my faith is just so weak and so, so feeble at this moment. How can we benefit from this passage this morning? Believer and unbeliever alike, how can we benefit from this this morning? Well, if you are here as an unbeliever, I would invite you to believe that Jesus Christ is the light, that he's present. Put your faith and trust in him. I invite you to do that this morning. If you want to talk more about that, we're ready and willing and anxious to talk to you about how sinners, hell-bound, captured in a kingdom of darkness, can be delivered out of that through the, the saving work of Jesus Christ. See that Jesus is the promised one fulfilling all our hopes. For me, it's just, like, I am so encouraged when I step back and I think, wow, what has John done? He's put Jesus in the context of all these historical events and affirmed the reality of, the historicity of, the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. We'll benefit from this passage if we see that Jesus is our source of life. Believer and unbeliever. We'll, we'll benefit if we accept Jesus' testimony about his eternality, his historicity, his work. I thought it was interesting as well, as I pondered this even more, realizing that Matthew takes this idea in the Beatitudes and says that we are sons of light. We are light to the world. And may God help us. May God help us as individuals. May God help us corporately as Creekside Church. We need to be thinking more about functioning as a family. Not just individuals who fall in and sit down and hear a message, get up and leave. But let's think about ourselves corporately. Let's think about ourselves as Creekside Church. A gospel-centered church. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that you and I will be acting like sons of light. Shining light wherever we are to bring glory and honor uh, to Christ. It's not often you get a phone call while you're preaching. But anyway, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so very much for this passage of Scripture. And Lord, you know, Father, I come to you And I plead with you, Father, Son, Spirit, to do a work in the hearts of, of we, your people, who are here in this, in this auditorium this morning. And Father, I ask that you would apply, your Spirit would take your word about Jesus, the eternal Son of God, and apply it to our hearts as we need it applied. Father, for some of us, maybe our faith is just weak, it's feeble, Father, we're just like, just barely getting along. And we believe, we've, we have believed. We believed and we are struggling to, to believe. Lord, I pray you would embolden our faith with these affirmations, these declarations, this story, this true story from, from the life of Christ as it's recorded for us under the Spirit's direction in the Gospel of John. I pray, Father, if there be any among us who have never sincerely placed faith and trust in Christ this morning, that your Spirit would do a work of conviction. We pray that your Spirit would bear in on the hearts and souls of those here outside of the kingdom of light, and that your Spirit would do a work to show them, Father, that they are hell-bound and captive to a kingdom of darkness, 
a need to be delivered out of that and can only be delivered out of it by the meritorious work of Jesus. Help them to see themselves as sinners in need of a Savior who is the light of the world. And may they believe in you and enjoy a life of, of, um, of following you. We come to the Lord's table right now, Father, as children of light. And really as we prepare our hearts and your, your heads are still bowed and you're reflecting on how the scriptures apply to you at this moment, the Lord's table is a time for the children of light. It's a time for the sons of light to say in a sense, by God's grace, we've been brought to the light and we follow Christ. So this table is not for unbelievers. And if you're here and you're, you're not sure, you're skeptical, you're not ready, just sit back, enjoy the music. Give some thought to the message. We love you. We're glad you're here. But feel no pressure to participate. The table is a reminder for those of us, sons of light, of what Jesus did for us. And what did he do? On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. He broke it and he said, this is my body. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. The blood of the new covenant shed for you. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you preach, you proclaim, you show the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing this morning. Just like the Feast of Israel had this intended purpose to celebrate the work of God in the life of the nation, so this ordinance is designed for us as a local church to celebrate the work of Jesus in our lives individually and corporately. So the men are going to distribute the elements right now and as they come and as they distribute the, the cup and the bread, take them together. Just hold them for a moment if you wouldn't mind. And just wait with me if you wouldn't mind. We'll pray together. We'll, we'll proclaim together.